From McKinsey & Company Strategy and Corporate Finance Practice, I'm Sean Brown, and welcome to Inside the Strategy Room. As the pace of social, economic, and technological change accelerates, organizations everywhere must make increasingly complex decisions in the face of an uncertain future. This is why the value of creative and strategic thinkers capable of solving complex problems has never been higher. During today's episode, we have a conversation between Chris Bradley, a senior partner in our Sydney office, and Rob McLean, a director emeritus of the firm, a trustee of the Nature Conservancy in Australia and Asia, and director of Australia's largest philanthropic foundation, the Paul Ramsey Foundation. Rob, along with Charles Kahn, is the co-author of a recently published book called Bulletproof Problem Solving the one skill that changes everything. Chris and Rob recently met in our Sydney office to talk about Rob's new book and how a disciplined and comprehensive approach to problem solving can be applied to almost any kind of problem, from personal decisions through to business strategies and on to some of the most complex challenges facing society today. We hope you enjoy listening to their conversation. Welcome, Rob. It's just great to have you here on our podcast. You've had such an interesting and long career since you graduated in the 60s. How did that lead to this book happening, Bulletproof Problem Solving? I had no real plan to write a book, but I found myself at a Nature Conservancy trustee meeting in Washington, and I was on a panel with Jim Morgan, a legendary Silicon Valley CEO, and Jim was talking about this book that he'd written. Then I had that long trip home from Washington, and I thought to myself, what what would I write a book about? And I thought, well, the unifying thing is that I've had a problem-solving life. And that involved my first real job at the Rand Corporation in, um, in New York, followed by 25 years at McKinsey. And then since that time, a lot of the work I've done has been with the Nature Conservancy, who are problem solvers in the environment, and more recently in philanthropy. It sounds like you got this inspiration to write this book. Tell me about the inception of it. It turned out that one of my uh, fellow partners in uh, Australia was Charles Conn, who wrote the original Seven Steps to Bulletproof Problem Solving. I went and saw Charles in his role as Warden of the Roads Trust at Oxford and said I had this idea that we ought to write a book about problem solving because nothing really existed that shared the way to go about problem solving that we'd learnt at the firm. And when I had that conversation with Charles, I talked about some of the things I was doing in conservation and social enterprise, and he talked about what he had been doing with the Gordon and Betty Moore Foundation and with other philanthropic foundations, and how he taught the young Rhodes Scholars the seven steps process. So out of that, we agreed that we would have a crack at writing a book on problem solving. We spent a summer together at Oxford at Rhodes House, together with my wife Paula, who is a a book editor, and um, a team of Rhodes Scholars who were our case writers and research assistants. You've set yourself a high bar calling this book Bulletproof Problem Solving. What makes you believe that this really is bulletproof? Well, bulletproof problem solving is an expression we, um, we used at McKinsey that meant that what you came up with to present to the client was ironclad. It really was a test of just how rigorous you'd gone both about you defining the problem breaking it down and doing the analysis. So it's about bulletproof comes from rigour. So what is a bulletproof problem solver then and and why do we need them now? Well, what um, we've reflected on in writing the book is that 
by almost any measure, the world is more complex and uncertain. And I think to our surprise, we came across some work done by the World Economic Forum that lists complex problem solving as the number one skill for 2020. There's also work by a McKinsey leadership group that shows that organisations that have got problem solving capability in the top quartile earn something like 3.5 times higher total return to shareholders than those in the bottom quartile. So it's, it seems to us that it's not just an individual skill, but it's also becoming an institutional skill in demand. But in your book, you not only explain to us why problem solving is more important than ever and more relevant, but you also go through how to be a bulletproof problem solver. So what's your synopsis there? We've got some 30 examples that include individual problems like, uh, should I have a knee arthroscopy or where should I live, to business problems you know, such as competitive strategy or you know, should I raise my prices or not raise my prices? Um, should we go to court and sue people who are in, infringing our patents? But what we've tried to show is that it's basically the same process uh, that underpins individual business and societal problems. Good problem solvers are, are made, not born. And if you want to become an outstanding problem solver, it's within your grasp. We're not drawing a line around only dealing with problems that involve good knowledge of accounting or business. People can find their way into the book and into a range of problems that we think are all addressable. You're right, Rob. I remember when I joined McKinsey over 20 years ago now, <laughs> and I first encountered the seven steps of problem solving as, as, as we taught it. I remember just thinking, where was this my whole university life? And I just would have been so much better with it and so much faster and, and more bulletproof. Yeah. I had a similar experience as Dean of a business school in Australia where I saw the students you know, picking up fantastic capability in finance and marketing and change uh, management. But what I didn't see was a systematic process for dealing with relatively unstructured problems. The ability to define the problem particularly in terms of what decision makers were looking for. The ability to disaggregate the problem. Very few problems can ever be solved at the highest level. So there's got to be some way to break the problem down into parts that you can address. And then taking that into a set of priorities, a work plan, analysis, and then recommendations that lead to action. So what I saw then as Dean, I continue to see now that college graduates, for the most part, do not know how to solve complex problems that we talk about in the, in the book. And we think that's a real gap in education globally. So they have depth in their functional wheelhouse, but if you come across a problem that doesn't fit into one of those taxonomies that they've already got, we hit, we hit trouble, don't we? Yeah. You're right, more and more of the problems we're encountering, both as you get more senior in an organisation, but also as the world gets more complex, aren't going to fit in those neat buckets, are they? No, they're not. And I, one of the things that we're very pleased about is that uh, Eric Schmidt, the uh, former chairman and CEO of Google, you know, made the comment uh, with our book that at Google we always hired for creative problems solving talent above all else. Yeah. And we think that's happening um, with more and more organisations. So it becomes not just a nice to have, but it becomes a must have for both business school graduates and, and college graduates more generally. So one of the things I really love about your book, Rob, as you say, is these 30 cases and stories because it, it really brings it to life and it, it allows you to see the common threads there. 
So let's start there, but perhaps with what happens when you get it wrong. What's at stake here? You know, what are some examples of when problem solving goes off the path? Often it's missed opportunity. And we have a, an example in the book where IBM in the, in the 1980s paid 20% to buy Intel and it had another 10% uh, of warrants uh, in the company. And they sold it for 625 million in um, 1986-87. And that was worth 25 billion a decade later. Similarly, they had the opportunity to buy 30% of Microsoft for 300 million in 1986. And 10 years later, that was worth 33 billion. So we're all geniuses in hindsight. What was the failure of problem solving that you saw in those examples? It has to be that understanding of the market dynamics and the way that the PC industry was going to, um, was going to evolve. And as you know, IBM was quite a significant player to, in that business. The amounts of wealth that were created in this case were just quite staggering. There's also examples, I think, from the personal level that we talk about in the book. I talk about whether I should have arthroscopic knee surgery. And it plays through to individual decisions and then in the social area and the environment, there's a lot of things that can go wrong. And we, we give examples of whether you should trade off the loss of fish stocks in rivers in um, Southeast Asia, where there's huge hydroelectric uh, potential. There's some very, very clever work that's been done by the Nature Conservancy and others to highlight that you can get 90% plus of the power by having minimal impact on the fish stocks. But if you go to getting 100% of the power, you have an enormous impact on the fish stocks and of course the, the populations that depend on fish for their livelihoods. It's almost like what you're saying is that if you're not a rigorous bulletproof problem solver, you're just gonna accept common wisdom and that means you're gonna accept a whole bunch of dumb risks and you're gonna say uh, no to a bunch of really good opportunities. So there's something about problem solving that allows us to see what's not the common wisdom. For several years, we've talked about strategy in terms of 10 tests that define what a good strategy looks like. And test five says, do you have a privileged insight or foresight? And the idea is that too often in strategic processes, we saw common math plus common data equals common wisdom. And therefore clients surprised that their strategy didn't lead to a terrifically differentiating or winning position. Talk to us about the problem solver's knack for getting that privileged insight, that, that insight that really makes the difference. So much of the time I see it coming from a team leader asking good questions. We had a, a CEO of um, a resource company in Australia, Rod Carnegie. His mining company had a, its most significant asset were these trucks that move iron ore. And one of the biggest issues they had was um, maintenance and tire changes. And Rod asked the question, who does this best in the world? And the answer was Formula One. Uh, so they sent a team off from the Pilbara to the UK to look at the whole procedure, processes, protocols for changing out tires and had a very significant impact on the way they thought about it. So that's an example of a question that led to a different way of going about things. I think more frequently, the insight that I saw for years at McKinsey came from talking to people at the front line and particularly talking to customers. And we have an example in the, um, in the book of the Avahan project that was funded by the Gates Foundation that arrested the spread of HIV in India. And the leader of that project, Ashok Alexander, spent something like a year interviewing over a thousand sex workers 
in different parts of India to understand what was happening to them and a lot of it related to violence and out of that came a plan that they evolved that was called the Avahan Plan which basically meant that the community was engaged, the journalists, the lawyer uh, from the community and um, the, the women were able to send off a mobile phone message when they were in, in distress. And that model was, was rolled out to 673 towns and villages in two years. So they scaled it up really quite, uh, quite quickly. But the insight for the solution came from these women at the front line. So, but how did that differ from the more orthodox way they were going about eliminating well, HIV? There was a, what you'd call a, a public health view that said you should stop the transmission. The hypothesis was that it was uh, men on the move at uh, truck stops and you could show that there were hotspots spread of HIV, and that was the starting hypothesis. Ashok had two insights. One was that every sex worker had 20 to 50 clients, and so there was a lot more leverage in working with the sex workers rather than the men on the move. That was one that didn't require much analysis, and he had that very early on with his problem-solving capability and discipline. The way he describes the solution, he feels it owes so much to the learning he got from the women that he spent time with. Well, it's a great example of problem search, isn't it? Because the first problem is, well, how do we reduce HIV transmission? Then that led to the problem of, okay, well, how do we uh, make sex workers practice safe sex more often? That's right. And that led to the next problem, which was, why is it that they're not doing that? Which came into these things about attitudes, threats of violence, etc. That's right. Well, that's a, just a fascinating story. So let's continue in the strategy vein. Some might argue all we really do in our strategy work with clients is just good problem solving applied to a specific business context. What is it about the field of strategy that in some ways might bring out the best and the worst in, in problem solvers? Both good strategy and good problem solving involve getting clarity about the problem at hand, being able to disaggregate it in some way and setting priorities. That's what I believe good strategy was all about, and I've, nothing has changed my, my view on that. One of the examples I have is where to serve in tennis, which may seem you know, a little bit of a frivolous pursuit, but I've used a game theory framework uh, for looking at it. And where you, where you serve in tennis, you have to think about your own strengths, competitor weaknesses, and you have to bring unpredictability to bear. So the way that I've answered um, you know, or, or laid out a decision tree for how I, where I should serve is based on all those things. How do you play to win in tennis? I'm a left-hander, so I have the advantage on the ad side of being able to serve out quite wide. Um, however, that makes me somewhat predictable about where I'm going to serve on key points. So I have to have that ability to be able to serve either down the tee or to the body, which I'm able to do, and that brings the unpredictability in and, and often turns out to be the basis of a winning point. So that's interesting because a, a, a strength that is truly predictable stops being a strength and that leads in, in the game theory literature into mixed, mixed, strategy, mixed, mixed strategy equilibria where actually the right answer is to mix it up in a, in a set Ex proportion. Exactly. What you're saying is when we're doing strategy, it's not playing tennis against the wall against ourselves. There's an opponent in there that we've got to outsmart and I think that's one of the first really important insertions in the problem-solving process that's important with strategies. You're not, you're not bowling alone, you're not racing alone, there's someone else there. 
and what you do is going to affect what they do and what they believe as well. Let's keep going on that. So on this uncertainty point, that's another point where I think differentiate strategy from your more meat and potatoes problems in that you've got to deal with the fact that you're making decisions now that last a long time. So therefore, 99% of the shelf life of your strategy is going to be in a world you don't know much about because it's yeah. called the future. Yeah. Talk, talk to me about how great problem solvers bring uncertainty into the mix. They do several things. They try to calibrate what the level of uncertainty is um, and you know whether that's going to impact on the, the range of choices they, um, they have. And for you know, what we refer to as higher levels of uncertainty, we then bring out a, a toolkit that you're very familiar with that involves how you think about what are no regrets moves that you, you ought to do, but usually about building capability. Mm. What are some of the low cost options that you can pursue that position you in the space and that allow you to learn? And then to figure out that timing for when you make a big bet. One of the examples I think that illustrates this in the book is we looked at the resource company BHP that was making a 50 plus year commitment. And that's a long time, it was like 50 to 100 years. Yeah. And we were able to satisfy ourselves. We looked at uncertainty on two major dimensions. One was the iron ore price, and the second was what happened to the Australian dollar, the exchange yeah. rate. We looked at scenarios where the, the iron ore price, we had a, a, an expected level, but then we had levels where it fell mm. by two standard deviations. You know, so we're covering 95% of possibilities, and then when it went up by two standard deviations. And then we looked at the range of possibilities of the exchange rate. That then allowed us to say we had a, a level of confidence that we had a, a venture that could both survive and prosper in the most likely scenarios and even the worst of the scenarios. So we were able to calibrate both calibrate the uncertainty and have a way forward. Yeah, so because putting a box around the uncertainty does two things. The first thing is often in the face of uncertainty, our clients will either be like, well, everything's uncertain, so it's an ambiguous world, so let's just muddle along, or say the exact opposite, which is pretend uncertainty doesn't exist and kind of put it in the corner and have it as the last page of the pack with risks and uncertainties. But what you're saying is, now, if you bring it in the centre and put a box around it, what you'd actually see is that just because the world's highly uncertain doesn't mean that the decision should be uncertain. Because in this case, what you found was that it was worth proceeding under a very wide range of, of scenarios. But there was um, something that happened that was quite important in this. We talk in the book quite a lot about having team structures that have diversity, um, that allow different viewpoints to be brought together. And we had one team member who was very bright he played the devil's advocate in the project. Yeah. And we have an expression which I, I know still applies in McKinsey of having an obligation to dissent. Yeah. And he took that very, very seriously. And that required us doing the work to have a level of confidence about the solution, even in you know, adverse scenarios, uh, that made us feel that we had a robust solution uh, to this problem. And that too often is missing. In, in problem solving settings. I love that idea. If you're going to put a box around uncertainty, it better be a good box. And that means you need lots of conflicting views and make sure you know, that it's the right, the right box. Rob, since leaving McKinsey, you've continued your problem solving life and you've in some ways graduated from everyday business problems 
into problems that are perhaps more of a wider global nature in terms of environmental or social problems. And you coin this term in the book, wicked problems. So tell us about what it's like to solve wicked problems. A lot of wicked problems, it's hard to say that they're solved and they keep on needing to be resolved. Um, but there are cases where I think you know, some significant uh, gains have been made. So just in general though, what is it in your mind that makes a problem wicked? Take social problems like obesity, which is one that we tackle in the book. Multiple causes is one significant dimension to it. Often it's unintended consequences when you seek to solve the problem in a particular way that you know makes it worse rather than... Uh, or, than creates a, or creates other problems. Or it creates right. other problems. Or sometimes yep. there are just values disagreement you know, among players about whether this is good or, um, or bad or, or otherwise. So they're the, the kind of problems you have to find a way to pick apart, find ways to have entry and to, to have impact without feeling that you're tackling the whole thing at once. Complex, messy problems where there's no benevolent dictator to make everything all right again. Yeah. The example we use with obesity yeah. really reflects, a, I think, a quite brilliant piece of work done by the McKinsey Global Institute where they took the UK and arrayed you know, some 44 interventions that would have the prospect of uh, lowering mm. those with obesity by something like 25% in five years. Mm. I don't think I've ever seen as ambitious and as rigorously set out the answer to a wicked problem. That's a classic multiple causes situation in which, in which trying to find the right intervention is really, really tough, isn't it? I want to talk a little bit about getting the conditions right for solving a problem well because um, you know, in our book, Strategy Beyond the Hockey Stick, we talk a lot about the social side of strategy. What is it that gets in the way of the purest answer to strategy? And it's often got things to do with competing interests and different perspectives and lock-in and um, a lot of bias to the status quo and existing power structures and so forth. So what are the big hacks you've got in your book to, to kind of get the conditions right for problem solving? We do spend quite a lot of time talking about alerting people to biases um, and they're not dissimilar to the biases you list around you know, confirmation and loss aversion and availability and, and so forth. We also put great weight on team structures. What we might have said more loudly is that you have to have leaders who are prepared to look at sometimes quite radical choices and real alternatives. And one of the examples we use is the case of minerals exploration where a CEO agreed to anchor outside rather than anchor inside. And in that case, it meant looking at the practices of the best companies in mineral exploration as well as the worst. And that turned out to provide a, a major insight to us about where exploration reported to the CEO, the level of science um, in the organisation and the culture that supported it and shifted it to a much more successful strategy. But if you don't have leadership that is prepared to look at the problem statement or the redefinition of the problem statement, your chances of getting great problem solving are much reduced. Strategists today have more analytical tools at their disposal than ever before. Don't want to age you too much, Rob, but you started with a slide rule, I think, and then, the, then you had the trusty HP, uh, HP calculator, which people might just can't use because it's backwards to us. 
And I started with Excel spreadsheets, but now there's thousands of times more analytical problem-solving horsepower and data to, to apply to it. How does a problem solver cope with all that? Like, how do you use these tools well? We say to teams that you always should start with heuristics and rules of thumb. And for example, if we had um, a merger or acquisition that there were three conditions for success that you know, might involve the cost reduction, the customer acquisition. Now, if each of these three conditions had an 80% chance of success, we'd say that if they were independent, there's only a 50% chance of success yeah. of the merger. So thinking that way around probabilities, joint probabilities, is where you start. Then the second thing we do is... So have good priors. Have good priors. Yeah. Then we say, just start looking at the data. And we've got an example um, in the book of, of London air quality. I'd read a piece saying that 3,000 people had died in London seven or eight years ago because of PM 2.5, the small particles. Yeah. And so I asked one of our uh, researchers to pull down two data sets, one on PM 2.5 and the other was on asthma hospital admissions in London and I gave him an hour and he produced this diagram that showed these hotspots and there was enough in that diagram that showed there was something you'd want to explore um, more closely. Mm. So before you jump into machine learning or you know major regression analysis, looking at the tails, looking at you know where the mean, median and mode are, all of the things that we... So what's the first empirical snapshot you can get that tells you where to dive in more deeply? Yeah. Yeah. And those things then help you with the hypothesis that you want to set for a major piece of regression analysis mm. or machine learning. Yeah. And somehow through that, you've even managed to link obesity to how good the footpaths are in the city. Talk to, talk to me about that. We know that obesity is a major issue and we thought, well, as a team, how would we just start thinking about it? And so the first thought, thing we thought was, well, how would you compare, uh, you know, caloric intake with caloric use in the US and Japan? And so the, the, the team quickly got the numbers on that, didn't take, you know, more than half an hour. What we found in Japan was that they had lower caloric intake, but they had substantially more caloric use. And it was like, well, why is that? Well, it was the structure of their cities, um, walking to the train station, walking to the office. So suddenly we had this variable of walkability uh, that we needed to, needed to explore. So we then asked one of our researchers to take a look um, at whether we could look at the US and look at differences between obesity in different US cities. So he pulled together uh, data on 68 US cities and we were able to determine that there's an enormous difference in obesity. And it's some 82% of the variance is explained by three variables, income, education, and walkability. Walkability, and that walkability is the new thing no one was talking about. Yeah, so we suddenly had a, by just kicking around different cleaving frames, ways to, to break down the problem, you know, we, we came across something that was quite interesting and, and we think, you know, presents a major opportunity, you know, for cities to sort of rethink their design, um, you know, that aids walkability. So far from replacing the way you might do problem solving, these new analytical techniques are just allowing you to go deeper and faster. What hasn't changed, though, is that classic kind of almost Sherlock Holmes exploration of kind of why, 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 why. Yeah. 
we are getting to a world where these algorithms are getting fiendishly good and they're getting fiendishly better than humans are doing certain things like, for example, spotting um, tumours, etc. What's the chances that our strategies could eventually be made redundant by an algorithm? And, you know, in that, what are, what are some of the opportunities and, and the traps that, that exist for strategists around this world of machine learning? Well, it seems to me that there's some terrific ways to use machine learning, and you may be familiar with Kaggle, uh, that crowdsources uh, machine learning problems, and you can uh, put on Kaggle a data set of, of borrowers, mm. and something like five or 600 teams will turn up uh, to come up with predictions for bankruptcy in the next two years from that data set, and you know, the, the client will choose the algorithm that works best. So that seems to me a good use of algorithms. Yeah, and the idea that one even very smart team sitting in an office building can beat 500 teams is laughable, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. And we also see in the example we've got about using drones for beach safety, by having a drone with a, with a camera and attaching machine learning algorithms, we've shown in Australia that you can have something like 90% accuracy in distinguishing a shark from a porpoise from a human, mm. but you still require that lifesaver on the beach to see people in trouble or whether an attack is, is present. So you're, you're coupling human capability with machine learning yeah. capability to get a better outcome. And we've gone a step further, and when I talked um, earlier about problem solving being an institutional skill that's being valued in you know, the share market with total return to shareholders, um, we think we're going to see a combination of mental muscle, you know, which is the cognitive problem solving, and machine muscle um, that's going to be, that will distinguish uh, the better companies going forward. So it's almost these tools are forcing us to be kind of in some ways more fundamental problem solvers because a lot of our brain load used to go in making the calculations that are now kind of happening automatically. Let me give another example. Um, there's an enormous temptation now to just run algorithms over data sets and boil the ocean. And that was always something that, when I was learning problem solving, that was anathema. If we take an exa another example that's on Kaggle, uh, the Titanic problem, and the, the question they asked the machine learning teams, and I think it was close to 2000 that had a crack at it, was who survived the Titanic? And what came out of the, uh, the algorithm was people who weren't called Mr. <laughs> And um, it, it's, it's amusing because you, you know that you could take a human and you could, you could say, you know, what were the priorities uh, to put people in the lifeboats? And of course, the answer was women and children. So you, you sort of can get there, uh, you know, in a fashion, um, you know, with, with machine learning. And there's no question that there's scope for better identification of, of disease and, um, you know, to... I think save a lot of uh, save a lot of labour, but we 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 see the same value in doing problem solving with defining a problem, breaking it down, having hypotheses, and testing them initially with simple data uh, before you go on to you know, to run these um, these algorithms. And with that, Rob, thank you so much for your uh, time on this podcast, and uh, all the best with your terrific book, Bulletproof Problem Solving: The One Skill That Changes Everything. Thanks, Rob. 
Many thanks to Chris and Rob for joining us today inside the Strategy Room. If you'd like to learn more about the strategic problem-solving techniques discussed in this episode, Rob's book, Bulletproof Problem Solving, The One Skill That Changes Everything, is published by Wiley & Sons and widely available. A transcript of today's podcast will be posted on mckinsey.com under the Strategy and Corporate Finance Practice. Thanks again for joining us.